It's December, so the games are like Trump on Air Force One, coming thick and fast. In Manchester, United host Arsenal in a game as entertaining as that dog sprinting on to save a goal in Argentina, although not quite at the same high technical level. At Molyneux, it's Wolves handing Chelsea another defeat, while at Wembley there's a bow for Saints new manager Ralph Hasenhutl. There's so much more to talk about as we round up all the midweek games and look forward to the weekend's action. We talk Chelsea's bubble bursting, my Langostine hell and more in this not-award-winning totally football show in association with Paddy Power. Listener, your ears the only award we'll ever need. And in the pod today for them, Tom Williams. Hello. Hi, Tom. Hi, James. Author of Do You Speak Football? Indeed. Excellent. David Priest, goalkeeper, podcaster, friend. Nice to have you back, David. It's nice to be back. It's been a while, hasn't it? It certainly has. I've been banished away with the under 18. Read nothing into that. Duncan Alexander, from Opta, but not Opta no good. Well, not at this exact moment. No. All right. Well, a big uh, round of games since we last were with you. Uh, What did you make of the midweek round, Tom? Very interesting. Very fun. All Premier League teams scoring in a match week for the first time, Duncan, since... November 2010. November 2010. Although they didn't technically all score, did they? Well, are we talking now in goals? Yeah, we are. I'm not sure that's worth it. No, but with the stats, does that does that still count? Well, it counts as a team goal. Um, Mourinho it? might beg to differ on these things, but yeah, generally it would count. Okay, well that's important. Any other conclusions? Well, I think one of the conclusions is that increasingly we look like we're looking at a two-horse title race and a three-horse race for the remaining Champions League places. There's now a six-point gap between Liverpool in second and Tottenham in third. And then between Arsenal in fifth and Everton in sixth, there's an eight-point gap. So table is starting to coalesce in, into some sort of, sort of form. Absolutely. All right. What kind of form? We'll be talking about that in today's show. Big game midweek was at Old Trafford. Man United Arsenal. Duncan, you were all over this. I watched the game. Yeah, yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> it was, as many people have pointed out, quite an odd edition of Manchester United v Arsenal. I mean, for people that remember, this used to be the biggest game every season in the Premier League. And it was kind of reminiscent of that. Um, Aston Villa Forest game from last week, where you know two former heavyweights slugging it out with maybe not that much quality, but it was it was very entertaining. Mm. Um, Mourinho rolled the dice as he often does. Um, has now made forty six changes to his starting eleven this season, which is uh, unsurprisingly more than any other team. It was yeah, to and fro. Seven changes here. Uh, the big news being Pogba and Lukaku stuck back on the bench where they were able to read at their leisure Mourinho's programme notes, which included the line, there isn't space for people that are not ready to give their all. What did he make of the team without them? Yeah, Pogba probably worked as hard trying to get the ball back as, uh, on the bench as he did on the pitch sort of at the weekend. Um, I don't think there was any sort of clamour for his inclusion. He should have been dropped. Same with Lukaku. It was a big, uh, I mean, bringing Rojo back in. I mean, it was. You said it was a throw of a dice, Duncan, but it was like it was, it was fighting talk. It was him just stripping down to his waist and just coming out and just saying, you know, offering everyone for a fight. Really, why? Why does Rojo represent? Well, Mourinho? just because he hadn't played for what was it two hundred, two hundred two days or something like that that he he hadn't played since, and he's not the most stable uh, defender at the, the best of times. And and that's another thing about this game: the defending was absolutely awful. Mm. All four goals the result of individual errors, is that fair? I'd say so. De Gea failing to control that, that header, the Mustafi header at the start, what was that about? Yeah, I mean, the first Arsenal goal, um, 
Mustafi header, which De Gea kind of did a low altitude Pickford, um, sort of fumbled it. But even then, Herrera still had a reasonably good chance to get it off. He's only got little legs, though, hasn't he? Yeah, but he kind of waited for it to drop, which seems a bit strange. Yeah. He just headed it or even chested it away, um, but he didn't. Um, and then United equalised soon after. All right, then, so Herrera, who's actually offside, crosses for Martial, while presumably the Arsenal players were looking at him thinking, well, he's offside, were they? Yeah, they well, they looked a little bit nonplussed, but mm. I mean, it was still a good finish from from Martial. Probably, I mean, ironically, the best goal of the night, probably in terms of technique. It was it was the only completely non rubbish goal. I mean, the other three goals could all have been included on this season's comedy own goals yeah. and gaffes Christmas DVDs had they not been scored uh, in early December. Well, let's talk about Arsenal going back in the lead then with Lacazette, or was it Rojo's goal? Yeah, well, Lacazette is is surging through the heart of the United penalty area after United have given the ball away just inside their own half and Marcus Rojo as is often his want launches himself into a desperate last ditch challenge and succeeds only in towing the ball past his own goalkeeper I thought when I first saw it that he'd actually kicked the ball onto Lacazette's foot but it has gone down as a Rojo own goal it has okay and then Lingard just 74 seconds later 13 seconds after the restart right okay sorry yeah so well no the same thing yeah but 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 anyway yeah so um Bolts is three, there's a succession of passes, um, and then the Arsenal defence decide just to give up defending. Well, really. it's their ball. And yeah. It's, Kolasinac, it's, it's typical of what's happening in, in football at the moment where you know players are taking, taking a little bit more of a chance and playing more football and trying to stay in control of the ball rather than just clearing it. In that situation, he's coming across, he's clearly winning the ball, just clear out for a, for a throw-in, but he's not going to get anything out of trying to keep possession there. And then... Yeah, there's miscommunication. Leno doesn't know whether he's going to come out with it. Kalasnash is wanting him to, to come out for the ball. Lingard just nips in and finishes it. Yeah. And then even after that, we had the sight of Lacazette trying to head the ball. We did head the ball yes. out of De Gea's hands. Alex mm. Wilcox asking, should Lacazette's cheeky goal have been allowed? Well, the commentator at the time obviously likened it to the Gary Crosby-Andy Dibble Forest City one back in the 90s, mm. which, if you remember, that counted, but led to a, a furore afterwards and, and they changed the rules. So, ah, it's now so what is the rule now? It's ungentlemanly conduct. If you head the ball out of a, out of a man's but if hands. But the, if, the, if the goalkeeper is bouncing the ball and you intercept it, in its bounce uh, between there was one at Blackburn a few years back Thierry Henry and I think Brad Friedel maybe mm. and Friedel was going to punt the ball downfield threw the ball up out of his hand and Henry just knocked it off his foot and scored and by the letter of the law goalkeeper hasn't got the ball in both hands it's not in his control Henry scored but again as a consequence of that I think that the rules were I'm not sure the rules were amended necessarily but it, it was it was ruled out for yeah, that precise it, reason the, the, the goalkeeper is in control of the ball that, that, I mean that's why it was changed because it's not like he just threw it aimlessly in the end he just Banks, Gordon Banks. Yeah, of course, yeah, but I, I think uh, the only time you can do it is when if the keeper just throws the ball on the ground yeah of course you can do it then yeah, yeah. of course yeah and that, like it happened to Aurelio Gomez yeah, it happened to a sheer given as well for Robbie Keane. Yeah, I see. It's a shame, though, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, put, well, I mean, like, everyone agrees. Everyone agrees that goalkeepers get too much protection, and that's just one other example of it. I think unless the keeper's got the ball in both hands, he, it should be fair game. Go in there, get a touch. Yeah, and it would have been the perfect Turn winner free for all for that game. An iconic winner for an iconic match. Absolutely. A, a winner, something that Arsenal haven't had at Old Trafford in how long? 2006. 2006. Since the iPhone was invented. Nice perspective on that. <laughs> if uh, if Arsenal's first goal showed Man United having problems with De Gea, uh, so yeah, did yeah. Uh, Gaduzzi with uh, <laughs> with Marin Fellaini. What an extraordinary thing! Yeah, you felt that Fellaini, um, as a man formerly of long hair, knew exactly what this would do. Do you think that's why he cut it? Possibly. Yeah. 
to deny any recourse to. Yeah, I mean, there have been some examples of players being suspended for hair pulling. In I the, remember in the Peter Premier. Crouch against Trinidad and Tobago. Do you remember that? Yeah, Ian Wright did it to Reggie Blinker in the nineties. Got a three-game ban. Um, so it's possible. I don't know. Did the referee see it? Because that's the big thing. No, he I don't be think he did. Punished, no. but yeah, he could be looking at a ban for it. Wow, and that's Fellaini. They can ill afford to do without him. All right. Well, at the weekend, Arsenal will be hosting Huddersfield, whilst at Old Trafford. Fulham are the visitors. We'll talk about that game after this. You're listening to The Totally Verbal Show with James Richardson. Yeah, that's the sugar babes fresh out of producer Ben's cupboard with Hole in the Head. Their number one hit, Duncan, in 2003, which was last time... Fulham won at Old Trafford. Yeah. yeah. Scorers were Lee Clark, Steed Malbronk, what a great name that was, and Junichi Inamoto. How about that? Uh, let's talk a little bit about their prospects of repeating that success this coming weekend. Tom and David, you both went to Craven Cottage. We did. On, uh, what was that, Wednesday night. Was it, obviously it was Ranieri's first clash with Leicester since leaving that club. Was it nice? Was it emotional? What was What was your highlight? It's hard to detect that sort of emotion from the press box. Um, I mean, Ranieri wrote some very nice program notes where um, he, he paid tribute to Vishai Srivadana Prabha um, and, and spoke about his influence at Leicester and him being the architect of the fairy tale. Um, he got a decent reception from the Leicester fans. Um, they were singing his name at the end and there was a little wave as he went off the pitch. But he made a point of saying in his press conference afterwards, you know, yes, it's very emotional for me coming up against Leicester, doubly so after the events of the end of October. But he said he'd, he'd managed to put those thoughts from his mind at the start of the game and, and kind of, you know, focus on his new job of, of steering Fulham out of trouble. Right, and they're still very much in trouble, still bottom of the table, but moving in the right direction now. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, one of the sticks that was used to beat Slavisa Jakanovic was that he didn't know his best defence. I mean, he changed his defensive setup in every game, pretty much, um, and with the consequence that Fulham had the worst defensive record in the division. Ironically, Claudio, Claudio Ranieri has used the same defensive setup in each of his three matches and it was the defence that Jokanovic used in his last game as manager hmm. at Liverpool uh, and it, that was also the game when Callum Chambers played in front of the back four for the first time so it, you could almost say that Jokanovic did ultimately settle on the defensive system that worked but by then it was too late and he was already set for the sack um, Fulham beat Southampton in their, their first game 3-2 um, but Ranieri interestingly said that he was more enthused by their performance at Chelsea last weekend where they won 2-0 but it was 1-0 for quite a long time and they were you know definitely in the game second half I saw signs of improvement against Leicester with that that midfield screen of Chambers and, and John Michael Serri they look a bit more solid uh, they're still a little bit sloppy at the back they were a bit attentive at a few set pieces but they, they seem to have a bit more about them now um, went ahead just before half time and generally succeeded in keeping Leicester at bay second half but then Claude Puel made a couple of changes um, Okazaki Damari Gray came on they combined to set up the equaliser for James Madison in the end I think a draw was about fair but from sort of Fulham fans that I spoke to that you know I think there's a feeling that Ranieri is you know looks like he's he's turning a corner with them do, what do you think of their chances of springing some sort of surprise away at Old Trafford uh, no chance I think as long no as, chance I, I think as long as the yeah uh, they keep playing a Adoy, Dennis Adoy. I think they're they're always going to struggle. Really? Yeah, I think he's the he's a massive weak link in the uh, in their back four. Um, I'm surprised. I'm not saying much of Callum Chambers to be honest, but I was surp- quite surprised by him last night. He looks a 
It looks a really good football. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Schmeichel made an absolutely wonderful save from him. Sort of, it was like a half volley, sort of hip height, uh, dropped, dropped him from a corner. And so Odo, he's now Odo operating knockdown. A, yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's now operating yeah. as a kind of DM, is he? Yeah. Yeah, and yet actually he gets forward quite a lot. Yeah. I saw some stat the other day that he'd had more shots on target or than any other Fulham he player looks, in recent really matches. Willing, uh, he, he wants to let go. As soon as he gets around the box, he looks really willing. He had to a shoot. great run against Chelsea when he beat sort of three players mm. and then put a ball straight out for a throw in, so it didn't end that well. But yeah, he's looking quite good going forward. Well, I remember I think he'd just arrived at Arsenal and he was, he played in the Emirates Cup in that pre-season friendly tournament and Wenger spoke about him having the potential to one day play centre mid and obviously when he ke- first came into the Arsenal team he, he played at full back quite a lot and got exposed because he's not the fastest player then ends up playing as a centre back more lately but yeah he, he didn't look out of place at all in, in, in centre mid OK last time Fulham went to Old Trafford not sure what year this was oh Duncan you'll know yeah 2014 OK and it was possibly one of the most iconic David Moyes era Manchester United games was it the crosses game yeah the 81 crosses that United put in, which is a Premier League record, um, and the result was two-two. And under Mourinho, they they ha- they still have a terrible record. United against promoted sides lost to all three of them last season. Yeah, that was the first time that had happened. Um, and yeah, I mean, there, there's something Manchester United Fulham is quite an iconic fixture. Strangely, I mean, Fulham's first ever game in the Premier League back way back um, under John Tigernell was away at United. Reed Van Nistelrooy's debut, he scored twice. Louis Sahar scored twice for Fulham. Um, so I think it's got the potential to be quite a memorable match. And given what happened to Moyes shortly after that match, it was the beginning of the end, really. So, I mean, we say this every week, don't we? But <laughs> it could be the beginning of the end right. for Moe. Oh, yeah. uh, perhaps the biggest game of the weekend will come on Saturday evening as Chelsea host Man City. Chelsea coming off two defeats in their last three. Duncan, you'd warned of this. You'd warned of the existence of a West London bubble. Yes. Did they listen? They didn't. Um, Back a few weeks ago when Chelsea was sort of keeping pace with Liverpool and City, um, their underlying numbers showed that it probably wasn't going to last. They were, you know, letting the opposition have a lot more good quality chances. Um, And I think we've seen that in their two recent defeats in the sense that Spurs created a lot of good chances and comfortably beat them. Wolves didn't really create a lot of chances, but they certainly you know, were comfortable in the second half. Um, and I think we're probably at a point now, I mean, David should have an opinion on this, I guess, but where we should probably start questioning how Kepper is doing at Chelsea because Wolves scored with their only two shots on target um, on Wednesday. Um, and the reason that Chelsea were getting away with all these big chances was, wasn't that Kepa was making loads of saves, it was actually that the opposition were just missing them. So he actually hasn't been that impressive, but he's sort of gone under the radar a bit, I think. Yeah, but I, th- I think apart from the, the first game against Huddersfield, where he looked a little shaky and uh, he, you know came for a couple of crosses and his, his physical presence isn't he isn't very authoritative, but I think it was a little harsh. Somebody said it was a, a Kepa howl at the first goal last night, and sometimes it went, when a ball goes in close to a goalkeeper... It's you know questions are asked, but those areas sort of down low to to your left, sort of like a it's like a triangle between your hip, your hand, and your and your and your foot. It's unless you just go with your feet. As soon as you start going with your hands, you you know you're dead. You're never going to get down there. So it, it looks like it just literally goes straight through you. If I'm bearing down on you, David, which triangle should I aim at? Would it be the one down to your left? Yeah, or the one that uh, David De Gea uh, quite frequently gets beat at is, which is sort of under his arms here. Oh, really? Yeah, so it, it's a lot easier to, to move your arm out that way than it's, it's less natural to, to come inside. So it's uh, sort of just side of the hips. All right. But it's... Um, 
yeah, Kepa, it's, it's, it's just strange that he, he's he been lumbered with his 70 million price tag when he's nowhere near worth that at all. And everyone knows that. Mm. Uh, but the expectation's still going to be there. How annoying is it as a goalkeeper when someone scores past you and puts the ball between your legs? Is it comparable in any way to a nutmeg for an outfield player? or do you just sort of No, not at all, because that's what, again, that's another it's another weak spot. So someone like Sergio Aguero, would, that's what he, he trains to, to put the ball there. And and it's difficult now because in in situations where when especially when balls are wide like it was for the first goal uh, Wolves first goal last night, it, it's it, you've got to go with your feet more now. So people in a higher stance, the hands are, should be higher and the and the legs are, f- are wider apart. Whereas traditionally with goal, in British goalkeeping, you get told you must always be um, shoulder width apart. But it's what happens is when somebody shoots, you sort of you jump outwards. And then back in again mm. to go out again. Whereas now it's it's more continental methods where you start with a wider stance. So if the ball does go low, you just go with your with your feet. And I think if if Kepper had, had had a wider stance and a more upright stance, he'd have just stuck a leg out. That's why you it. need Scott McTominay crouching behind you at all times. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Great shout. Sari sounds really worried. I'm really worried. There you go. Uh, that we didn't react to their first goal. Uh, yeah, what is it? Have Chelsea lost their intensity? Uh, possibly. I mean, like like Duncan said, I mean the, the the signs have perhaps been there despite their encouraging form. I mean, I think a big factor in the the two most recent defeats has been Jorginho. Obviously, he he was shut down very effectively by Deli Ali uh, when they lost uh, to Spurs at Wembley, um, and then last night he was kept on the bench and. You know, Sarri, as we know, is a manager who likes to keep faith with his starting eleven. He made a few changes last night. Fabregas came in, um, Andreas Christensen came in, Ruben Loftus-Cheek came in uh, and scored again. Um, but they're obviously not quite the same team without Jorginho. And the thing that Sarri pinpointed was the, the loss of control. You know, Chelsea went ahead first half, seemed to be on top of the game, were making chances. And as soon as Wolves equalised, the whole complexion of the game changed. And that's when you need your little man in midfield to put his foot on the board and which, sort of slow things down. Which Fabregas, I guess, was meant to be doing. In which Jorginho's I guess Fabregas was meant to be doing, but he's he clearly not. A few passes than Jorginho would mm. have done traditionally. But I think also the, it, they're just not scoring enough goals. You know, Hazard hasn't scored for ages. Um, Morata and Giroud aren't particularly reliable. And when you know as a team that goals are not just going to flow from all sources, you look how much more confident Arsenal look now that they know that Lacazette, Aubameyang and various mm. others are going to score. What's that stat, Duncan, about... Hazard only scoring when Morata doesn't start? Yeah, this season uh, Hazard's goals have come when he's been on the pitch with Giroud, but then Giroud scored one goal, so you know, you, can you play another player just to kind of you know help someone else? The well, Emil Heskey paradigm. Sorry. Tom. France won the World Cup with Olivier Giroud. Yeah. I've said this before, but I think Giroud is the absolute perfect foil for Hazard. I can't think of a single centre-forward in world football who is a better partner for a player like Hazard, who is always looking for little one-twos, who needs someone to play off. And if one of the consequences of them playing together is that Giroud only scores six goals this season, but Hazard scores 30, you take that over Morata. God love him, just running down endless blind alleyways. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Wolves, a return to form for them or something that had been coming? Well, they seem to play quite well when they play bigger teams. I don't know whether it's the kind of the more technical approach that suits their players rather than the, the blood and thunder of the, the lower teams. But, I mean, the standout was uh, Morgan Gibbs-White, who made his first start in the Premier League, um, first of that World Cup winning team to start a Premier League game, um, and got an assist on his uh, on his debut, on his full debut. So, you know, he looks to be... You'd think he'd now get a good run in the team, 
fitness uh, permitting and looks like he deserves it. They, need, they needed that though. Uh, Nuno needed that. Uh, there were six games without a win, and there there's no danger of them ever going down. I don't think, but it's um, it, they just don't didn't have that cutting edge. You'd think that they would bring somebody in, in in January. I mean, I, I quite like him, and as you know, he's, he's does great work around the box, great hold up play, link up play, and but he just his finishing's lacking this this year. All right. Well, Chelsea dropped to ooh, ten points off the top now. And next up it is, as we mentioned, Man City, who are rumbling along on top like something out of... Have you seen those trailers for Mortal Engines? Those kind of vast no. cities on wheels that kind of rumble across the landscape, destroying everything in their paths. Yeah, I mean, that's the metaphor. I mean, that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, right, uh, David, you went to see City at Watford on yep. Tuesday. Yep. It was actually quite close at the end, wasn't it? It was. It was, it was a lot closer than it should have been. But, I mean, it's uh, it just from that... From the first minute of every game, teams on the back foot against City. City have a they they work a chance in the first, you know, the first sort of moments of the game, and then from that on, so it's almost like a, a puncher getting punched in the in the first second, and then they're sort of trying to cover up for the rest of the fight. And it's uh, to be fair to Watford, I mean, they came closer. I, 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 I like Watford as a, as mm-hmm. a side. Yeah, last season, I thought towards the end of last season, I liked them, and they thought they were playing well. And um, and, and this season, they're the same. They, they, they were different to, to work out because they. I, st- I still think they should be doing even better than what they are. I know Troy, Troy Dini's done well for for Watford over the years, but they're probably a, a, a better striker away from from challenging that top six. Well, their goal here came from Ducare, yeah, yeah, and uh, sparked a little bit of panic in uh, among Man City's. Ranks, but uh, City do emerge with the three points. 21 games without defeat for Pep, a goal difference of plus 38. Duncan, that must be a record. It's the best since Sunderland in 1892 93, back in uh, David's time. Glory days. That's a long time. (laughs) That is quite a long time ago, yeah. Um, City won 49 of their last 57 Premier League games just to. uh... Right, they've only been behind, as I'm sure you told us before, for 12 minutes all season. But what was against Wolves, actually? (laughs) Yeah, what a 12 minutes. All right, what's going to happen when they face. uh, What was it? Is it at Chelsea, this, is it? Hmm. Yeah. They've taken on Chelsea once before. Four in the Community Shield, excitingly, when it finished 2 0 to City, a brace for Sergio Aguero, who was one of the many changes that, that Pep made for this game, both Sterling and Aguero out of the picture. There's some suggestion that's, that Aguero's not going to be fit for this weekend either, or, or is he meant to be back? We'll, we'll see. We'll it see looks like this. he's going to be out, I think, uh-huh. by the sounds of things, which means another run out for Gabriel Jesus, who's a funny one, because you remember how excited we all were when he first came to City, and they, you know, the next big he, thing to in... come out of Brazilian football. Absolutely. Um, I mean, he was their first choice number nine at the World Cup, and he just hasn't really kicked on at all. And you see little flashes, and there was a moment in the first half against Watford where he made a bit of space for himself over by the left-hand by the byline on the left-hand side and, and set someone up. But he, he doesn't really feel like he's kind of kicked on in, in a way that a lot of the players that Guardiola's worked he's with have. Up a couple of injuries as well. Yeah. set him off for yeah. a little while as well. That's held him back. But did you see um, Edison's no-look pass? I'm not sure that I did. Yeah. He, he just, he, what did he, to be fair? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it, it's ridiculous. Just him and, and Alisson are just taking goalkeeping to another level. Right. There's another one for Edison, I think, quite late on, where someone played a back pass to him and overhit it a bit. One of those mm. that I imagine goalkeepers don't appreciate very much that arrives around hip height. Mm. He took a touch to set it, took another touch, and then just volleyed it back down the pitch. Magnificent. I mean, he's yeah. so good. Well, who's Edison. better, David? Is it is it Alisson or, 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 or Edison? I've got uh, a couple of tweets here. I don't like cricket. Asked if, if Alisson is the best goalkeeper of all time or the second best goalkeeper of all time. Scared Bobby British. 
Uh, Alison's footwork, absolutely phenomenal, or am I just blinded by bias for thinking that he's magnificent? Who, who do you prefer? Alison's better from the waist up, Edison's better from the waist down. In every sense, probably. Well, I mean, I'm mean, I mean, just assuming so. <laughs> you know I mean? Right, OK, so really... so Edison's range of passing, as, well, as good as Alison's is, which is phenomenal, right. Edison's is just ridiculous. It, watching him in training with the rest of the, the, the City squad, as good as technically as they are, he looks. there's no difference whatsoever. He could play outfield in that team. I mean, I've made the point before that he's got a pass completion rate that in the late 90s would have made him the best midfielder in the... Yeah, but look, look at his range of passing, though. It's not just like Lloris where he's just passing it short a lot. His range of passing is ridiculous. And the best thing about him, the same with Alisson, is that how calm they are. What Even just in training sessions, he trains... Uh, Edison trains sort of... It's intense, uh, his work rate. But most of the time, it's almost like he's flatlining. Especially when he's, when he's got the ball at his feet. In the short, in sort of like pressurised, uh, small-sided games. He's just not worried at all. Okay. Not under pressure at all. all right. but, um, but Alisson from the waist up? Yeah, just because he's... I think he's a, a, a better goalkeeper, a better shot stopper. Okay. But traditional goalkeeping. But it, it, last night, uh, just talking about distribution, Cash mm. uh, Schmeichel last night, the same way that Guardiola is influencing coaches to and, and giving them the bravery to play that the way that he is, Edit likes of Edison Allison just raising the bar for for distribution and giving goalkeepers the confidence to play more difficult balls. So last night, it, it, I was getting upset with uh, Chilwell myself because Schmeichel was it, whether it was a half volley off the deck, he was hitting it perfectly to him. And he was letting it go off each toe, he was chesting it away. And I was close enough to throw my pen at him, and I was close a few times just to ping it at him, like, you know. David was quite animated. Yeah. He had to be restrained on a couple of occasions. It was. It was delightful. Absolutely delightful. Incredible. I know this isn't a home for my fetishes, but thanks for, for letting me hear that. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. So uh, when Edison and his teammates arrive at Stamford Bridge on Saturday evening, Tom, what's your prediction? I can't see anything but a City win. I just think the level really? they're playing at, I mean, they're they're even better than they were last season. And we I think we're a bit blinded to that because you kind of got used to them being incredible last season. But, I, you know, watching them against the first half against Watford and they just hit that rhythm like from kickoff. There's no sort of feeling their way into the game. As soon as they've got the ball, they're in control. And I, I don't see... I don't see Chelsea in their current form hurting them. What, what about Maurizio Sarri springing some kind of hideous surprise tactically? But he's not really a surpriser, is he, Sarri? No, he's, yeah. It's basically plan A, and if plan A doesn't work, we'll just make it a bit better and, and try again. I mean, obviously, you know, they'll be they'll be full strength again. Jorginho will come back into the team. Right, um, and, and am I being tactically naive when I ask, there's no way that Pep will bother putting somebody on Jorginho the way that teams who've been successful against Chelsea have been doing? Probably not. Again, that's just not really a Guardiola sort no. of thing. Um, I mean, I guess it, he'll... he'll he'll count on his players crowding Jorginho because that's generally what they do when they're out of possession and I think he'll probably have enough faith in City's pressing game um, to trust them to do that without having to pinpoint someone to follow Jorginho all over the pitch the things like I said it here last year that you're on a hide nothing against City anyway so why not just go after them and like just do maybe not do exactly what they do but go sort of like Bielsa style 11 v 11 man for man all over the pitch and try and get some that way the only team that's done it that did it to them was Liverpool last season. Look yeah, what happened then. With great results. Yeah. Liverpool, of course, were Chelsea to take points off Man City Saturday, could find themselves top of the table. They're only two points behind, and they're going to be at Bournemouth, who did get a much needed win midweek against Huddersfield. Uh, Callum Wilson and Ron Fraser uh, combining delightfully. Stein saying, Is there a better bromance in the Premier League right now than Ryan Fraser and Callum Wilson? 
Probably not, Stein. Probably not. Yeah, I mean, Wilson's obviously been linked with Chelsea. And, has he? Yeah. I hadn't heard that. Well, he has. And uh, with the January window roaring towards us, like winter itself, it could, could happen. It'd be quite a, it would make sense, but it'd be sad for Bournemouth. Um, one thing about that game on Tuesday was it was the first Premier League game to have less than 10,000 people at it since 2000. Really? Yeah. The Bournemouth game? Yeah, I mean, obviously the '90s there were plenty of um, of low attended games. The lowest being Wimbledon Everton back right. in 1993, which had just over 3,000. But yeah, that's no. I'm not denigrating the Bournemouth fans. But, no, um, I mean equally, Spurs had a. a Spurs are closing in on that record, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. Only 33,000 at Wembley, which obviously is a lot more than 10,000. But it probably um, says more about Huddersfield than. Bournemouth, really. Right, and, 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 and Saints in, in Spurs' yeah. case. We'll talk about that match a little bit later on. Tom, though, as an outspoken advocate of uh, Giroud as um, Hazard's partner, how would you feel about Callum Wilson joining Maurizio Sarri's team? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Wilson would be as good a foil for Hazard as, as Giroud, but I mean, clearly he's in form, and mm. Chelsea need a striker who scores goals, and you'd hope that if that does go through, it works out for him um, because you know we all know that the injury problems that he's come through. He's now an England international. He's been a brilliant form for Bournemouth this season. Um, you know, got a great relationship with the players around him, whether it's Ryan Fraser, David Brooks, Josh King. Um, so I mean, yeah, if that does go ahead, hopefully he you know makes a success of it. Mm, all right, I kind of hope he stays at Bournemouth. Bournemouth anyway did get the win against Huddersfield. I mentioned uh, him scoring, him setting up Ryan Fraser as well. They now host Liverpool, who had a bit of a scare away at Turf Moor. They put a, a kind of B team out, would that be fair, David? Uh, lots of players rested, Salah on the bench, Firmino on the bench, and lo and behold, the Clarets took the lead. Well, first of all, they almost took the lead with that wonderful Barnes, that Ashley Barnes volley, uh, but then uh, after your pal Alisson forgot to control the ball, um, it was uh, Cork. Jack Cork. Yeah, he just stabbed it in the net, yeah. yeah. Great example of uh, Alisson, by the way. With his, you're saying that Alisson's hands, oh, yeah. you like, when he when he launched the counter-attack, which led to Shakiri's goal. Well, well, well this is it. I mean, they, they, they criticised uh, Loris Karius last year because sometimes he was too you know, too uh, hasty trying to get counter-attacks away and that led to to errors by him. But with Alisson, it was the first thing. I got a few texts straight away as soon as they scored it and it just, few textures saying Alisson watch it and then it, it is it's I mean the 2-1 up in the end of a game and, and people are talking about Jordan Pickford you know maybe he's criticising him for trying to catch the ball and if they want to you know I don't think he was trying to launch an attack at uh, the weekend but some people say well that, let's talk about Jordan Pickford yeah, then because uh, you were you were a lone voice in support of him after yeah. the Derby defeat what, so talk us through why you think it wasn't that big an error. Well, simply because it, it was a difficult situation. That ball, that's a high-dropping ball like an up and under, it's the most difficult ball to judge in, in, for a goalkeeper. And regardless of what anybody else, you know, their perspective of the of the goal and what their their opinion is, you could see that you know in most situations people can get a good idea what's happening. In that situation. Jordan Pickford is the only one who's got that perspective of the ball and that's the one just dropping straight on top of him. Now, in that situation, more often than not, that ball arrives at you quicker than what you anticipate. And if you can judge those balls, um, which people don't train, and this is the thing, you don't really train for those high balls up and unders at that, at that height. Um, it's, it, like I said, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to judge. So when the ball's coming down on top of the bar... It, it looks as if, from the side angle, that it's going to be uh, it's dropping just on the second, the back half of the post, uh, the bar, so it'll go out. But he doesn't know that. It's impossible for him to judge. And from from what he said, 
he's put two hands there as insurance, and if it, it hits his hands, he's relying on a, assuming that it's just going to be enough to take it out. But I mean, you've got to say that uh, his game management, that time of the time of the game, you know, there's a there's a point resting on it. It would have been a good result for them. He's got to earn the size of safety, but I, I don't think it was an error in the same way that David De Gea's was an error last night. And at the time, you made the point that, for example, people spoke out about Mourinho giving Marcus exactly. Rashford grief for the the miss that he made. Nobody, even, well, no, is it? I mean, there was no criticism of, of obviously it was a glaring miss for him not even hit the target from that from that distance, and it's a far easier situation than what John Pickford faced. Yet there was no criticism of uh, Pickford, and everyone stood up quite rightly so, saying that Mourinho shouldn't be sort of um, sort of shown his displeasure at his mm. at, at a young player. Well, why not do that for John Pickford? Because he's a goalie. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, David. There's more that we're not done with Burnley Liverpool yet, are we? No, Liverpool are in this weird situation where they are they've equaled the record for fewest number of goals conceded after fifteen games, mm-hmm. which is good. Um they've got the seventh best start to any top flight season in the history of English football. And yet it still feels like they're barely hanging on to Manchester City. So in any other league, in any other season, they would be, you know, comfortably clear. If if this was nineteen fifty eight, which in some ways it is, um they <laughs> they would be thirteen points clear at the top. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, you never know, because if if my suspicions prove to be correct and Chelsea do something to Man City and Liverpool do win this game at, at Bournemouth, then hello, top spot. Well, also Liverpool play first, so if they win, they will <sighs> go top. They can put the pressure on. Just to come off the back of what Duncan was saying, this is Liverpool's best ever start to a top-flight season in their 126-year history. This is the 18-time champions of England, and they've never made... Such a good start to a season, and yet they're still two points off the top. And we're all still a little bit underwhelmed by them, which is crackers, the, really, when you look at the for, results. What they're on course for is at 98 points or something at the moment. Mm. Yeah. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, there's Liverpool fans who say that they're deliberately playing a little bit slowly to sort of rest the players so they can go hard in the spring, or it could just be that it's not working out for them, but you can't say it's not working out for them. Because they clearly is. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So. Well, Liverpool do have a big game coming up. The following midweek, when they'll be hosting Napoli, of mm. course. And Joe Gomez, worryingly, looking like he's probably not going to be part of that particular fixture. Yeah, we was hurt in a challenge by Ben Mee, and Jurgen Klopp was unhappy with a lot of Burnley's challenges. I think he felt that they were getting away with a few too many slide challenges. Mm. And as, as any schoolboy footballer who's ever played football in the rain will know, it's very hard to resist the temptation to launch yourself into a big slidey when the grass is wet. But Jurgen Klopp felt that Burnley got a bit carried away. Bend me, shake me. Well, yes. Uh, right, anyway. So, well, that's exciting. Then Bournemouth taking on Liverpool. I have no idea. When is that game taking place? Saturday afternoon? Saturday lunchtime, I think. Yeah. Saturday lunchtime. Ooh, the early. Yeah. What, what, a, what a great start, start. To, the, uh, to the round of matches. Hey, speaking of starts, let's stop for a second or two. And then we'll come back with more things, including... Hello, Ralph Hasenhutl. After this. Ah, Christmas. The time of generosity, great food, terrible television, even worse jumpers and a packed Premier League fixture list. And nobody does generosity at Christmas like Paddy Power. We're giving money back as a free bet on at least one game in every round of fixtures. The only people paying out as much this Christmas will be Man United when they inevitably terminate their manager's contract. Ah, you'd be a turkey to bet anywhere else. Paddy Power, enough of the nonsense. Applies to first bet on all losing goal scorer, correct score and what's Paddy bets. Max refund £10. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Be gamble aware to talk. 
on Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere. This is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Sunderland supporters, rubberneckers, etc. We've got an interview in our Totally Football League show with Ben Turner and Leo Perlman, two of the guys from Fall 73, who've made the new Sunderland documentary uh, that's going to be on Netflix. Uh, this is very exciting. We've got a quick taster for you as well. Certainly when we started uh, when we started the filming and when we, we, we approached the club and Netflix to talk about this series, it wasn't with the intention of following the club that we love getting relegated for the second time in a row. It was very much with the idea that this great club would bounce straight back up to the Premiership heroically and we'd have lots to celebrate. In terms of uh, filmmakers' perspective, the drama that came with a change of manager, or two changes of managers even, the takeover of the club and the relegation certainly gave us more than we could have ever hoped for. I say hoped in inverted commas, hoped for, uh, for, the, for the series. But no, it wasn't something that we expected at the start, that's for sure. Well, you can hear the full interview on the latest TFLS with Caroline Barker. About 32 minutes in, Tom, if you want to skip the other mm-hmm. bits about AFC Wimbledon, Ipswich and Rotherham. The show, Sunderland Till I Die, starts, David, on Netflix on 14th of December. You're ringing that in red in your diary. Yeah. There was the, I Are think you the, in the, it? The other premier, well, do you know what? I was supposed to be. I was in the first... I did a couple of interviews at the start, uh-huh. um, and I just couldn't get back up to Sunderland to, to film the rest of it, so I, I, I'm probably on the uh, cutting room floor, I think. Their loss. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, it's, ooh, it's a big week for Spurs. They're at Leicester. This weekend, they're at the Camp Nou on Tuesday, where they need to win to stand any chance of qualifying for the knockout rounds of the Champions League. And on Wednesday, they were at Wembley, welcoming Saints new manager Ralph Hasenhutl by spanking his Saints 3-1. He was there watching in the uh, in the stands. Good thing he was, because very few other people were, as we mentioned. Uh, Spurs, comfortable winners there. They go third in the table, ahead of Chelsea. But I think perhaps the bigger question here is what to make of the Hasenhutl appointment. On one hand, he's one of the brightest stars of this incredible generation of young German managers. But on the other, he's a foreign fella who's never had any experience of British football in the Premier League. And his first match, he's got Neil Warnock. That's the that's introduction. Away at Cardiff. Right. Ultimate well, culture shock. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's speak to the always cultured Raphael Honigstein, a man who knows all about Herr Hasenhutl. Rafa, uh, Ralph Hasenhutl has gone to Saints, you know. Should Saints fans be happy about this? Yeah, I think they should be happy about it because it seems to me that he is uh, the kind of guy that fits the Southampton blueprint, or at least the blueprint that was very much in action when they had the likes of uh, Maurizio Pochettino there. A guy who might not have sort of the biggest name in English football just yet, but his working methods, his playing style... His track record, I think, all suggests that he is uh, exactly the kind of guy that you'd want, A, in a relegation battle, and B, with a view of progressing with a team that cannot rely on big big player sales, yes, but not buys. He's not going to be a guy who's looking for excuses. He's not going to be a guy who's talking down his own team. He's going to do absolutely everything to make sure that what he has and I think it's fairly considerable. They shouldn't be one of the worst teams in the league, um, considering their squad, will will be utilised. And I think he is a real coach uh, in that sense. And I think that's exactly what, what Southampton need at this point, somebody who can take a team 
uh, take players who are a little bit low on confidence and uh, give them that sense of purpose back and a very strong idea of how they should play. And I think that is sort of half the battle won already. Thanks to Ingolstadt and, and of course, uh, Leipzig. He, he's, is it fair to say he's one of the biggest, kind of all the, the brightest stars of this crop of young German managers? It would be fair to say that in 1938, when Germany and Austria were one of the same country. Um, but now, James, it's fair to say he's one of the best German-speaking um, managers okay. coming through. He's Austrian. He's Austrian, yes. Right, okay. Nicely nicely handled, Raf. Yes, well, yes. I, But no, I was going to say, but he's not... He has managed abroad then in Germany, but he's not managed in the UK or in the Premier League. Do you harbour any doubts about how well he's going to be able to adapt or the team will adapt to him? I don't really. I don't think that the Premier League is no longer sort of a, a league where you need very specialist knowledge to succeed. I think it's become so international and teams that you're up against play such a varied style, a lot of them fairly continental really, which is not surprising if you look at the personnel involved at all levels, that the adaptation, I think, certainly in the short term, is not going to be too big. When it then comes to sort of planning a season and planning a squad and getting to grips with the travel arrangements and with the amount of games, I think these are sort of things that he will have to learn. But I think in the short run, just trying to improve a side that is uh, a little bit lost at the moment, I don't see why his methods, which have shown to be working in a broad sense, with Pochettino at Southampton, with Pochettino at Spurs, with Club of Liverpool, with David Wagner at Huddersfield. I don't see why they should not be just as successful at Southampton. Yep, Ralph Hasenhuttl is, is not predicted predicted by you, Duncan, of course, famously last well, week. Well, yeah, I, I was... Uh, I Wrong. Was, I was, the, yeah, that yeah. is one word for it, yeah. Okay. Now, it just so happened that on Tuesday, I was sat in a studio with two people who were discussing... Uh, his arrival, one was Alan Shearer and the other one was Tim Sherwood. I wonder if you can guess what they thought about the decision to hire him as opposed to, say, a British manager, David. Well, I did the phrase, I don't know much about him, but... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Tim, for example, was saying, you know, he's come in, he knows nothing about the league. I had the same situation at Aston Villa, where, of course, Remy Gard took over and I think they were 13th under Sherwood and then they ended up going down... Um, so I don't know. There is always that question about somebody coming in who doesn't know the Premier League. It's a, in some ways, it's a valid point. There is, but the, the style that's especially all like uh, the German and Austrian coaches that the, the come to the country and playing that this type of football is that it's literally a traditional, a traditional English style, but with brains. Mm. So they're taking the brawn and adding some brains to it, and then the, the pressing game is much more intelligent rather than just. Teams in the 80s and 90s pressed uh, opposition, but it was kind of like, you know, you go and press the first, you know, the nearest man go and press the ball, then everyone else just following behind them. Where this one's a little bit more, uh, a bit more method behind it. But. All right. Pochettino, of course, arrived at Southampton in an almost identical time of year. What was it, January when he took over from, um, from Thinks Very Hard? Nigel Atkins. Nice man, yeah. Nigel Atkins. And obviously that left, led to a massive protest by Southampton fans who were, were not happy with this foreign manager coming in. It turned out he was quite good. Southampton managers tend to start quite badly. The last um, manager to win his first Premier League game as Southampton boss was Paul Sturrock. Oh. Now, I don't know if they have fried egg baps in Austria, but we'll, uh, we could find out. I'd like to find out. It is a tricky start that awaits Ralph Hasenhutl after the trip to Cardiff, who've won, I think, the last three games at home. They have Arsenal, 
then away at Huddersfield, and then West Ham, and then ooh, Man City. What, what do you think? Are they going to kick things off with a good result at Cardiff? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, what Cardiff have got, they've got a bit of bit of metal you know mm. rather than all the teams around them they've if they weren't going to win games they were certainly going to draw the weight of double figures so I think that uh, they'll be high in confidence as well I fancy them uh, yeah I, I fan- actually fancy Cardiff at home so I, think, I think the difficulty when you appoint a manager like Ralph Hasenhudler is that it will take time mm. for his methods to get across and when you're in a relegation dogfight time is one thing that you don't necessarily have which is why generally speaking in recent seasons when Premier League clubs have, have changed manager in the situation they've gone for the sort of classic British firefighter mm. who will make your team hard to break down and tighten things up at the back blah 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 so Perhaps the fact that they've got these tricky fixtures isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world because Southampton fans won't necessarily expect to get anything from those games and during that time, the new manager can be working on team shape and, and the pressing and everything. So perhaps by the time we get to the turn of the year, they'll be, they'll be, you know, they'll be more advanced down the, the evolutionary path that I'm sure Hassan Hootl has in mind for them. Do you know what Hassan Hootl means? Someone said this the other day. Rabbit something. Rabbit, something. Rabbit Hutch. Rabbit Hutch. Yeah. So it's Ralph Rabbit Hutch. Mm. Nice. Yeah. yeah, well, at least we know he's going to go with a carrot, not the stick method. Hey. hey. Let's hope he's not here today, gone tomorrow. Mm. Sorry. People of the Totally Football Show, you know what you could be listening to right here? You could be listening to you, your company, your product, out here in front of hundreds and thousands of listeners who are mostly men aged between the ages of 25 and 44. And it's not just this show either. We've got a whole network of podcasts. There's Galazzo for your considered cosmopolitan listener. There's the Totally Football League show for your loyal hardy listener. There's the Totally Scottish Football show for your listener who likes those big square sausages. And we've got more shows on the way too. To discuss advertising across the Totally Football Show network, email sales at muddyneesmedia.com. We reach well over a million pairs of ears each week. And now you can too. Email sales at muddyneesmedia.com. Do you know what I'd like to talk about now? Brighton. We never get enough chance to talk about Brighton. Uh, this is the perfect opportunity because they, they're fresh from the M23 derby. Yeah, never trust the derby named after a road, in my opinion. How many other ones? Are there other derbies? There's the M40 derby, which is Wickham and Oxford. Okay. Um, and I think there's probably a few in the northwest. There's one in Canada. It's something like the highway, highway 405 derby. And I that's like that. Toronto that cool, against Montreal <laughs> Impact. It's quite a long highway, though. Like It's a lot, along the, think, it's a lot actually, longer than the M23. The more, if there's more than two numbers, it sounds good. So maybe you want like, the B4382. sounds exotic. But anyway, yeah. so they had this game, Eagles v Seagulls and that, and, and the centuries of bitterness between these two communities resulted in a 3-1 win. A 3-1 win, it was 3-1, wasn't it? 3-1, yeah. With just 10 men. What a fantastic performance from Brighton. Yeah, Shane Duffy was sent off for Brighton. All four of Brighton's red cards in the Premier League have been straight reds, which I admire. It's a commitment that you don't often get in the modern game. Um, and those three goals, it's 6% of the goals Brighton have ever scored in the Premier League. Sorry? So 6% of the goals Brighton have ever scored in the Premier League were those three in the first half against their arch rivals, which is pleasing for Brighton fans, I imagine. That's extraordinary... Extraordinary high proportion. Of yeah, they don't they score many goals, Brighton. So. I'm getting that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing though. And also the yeah. first time in Premier League history yes. that two substitutes have scored in the first half. Ah, okay. So um, who were they? 
Balagun and Florin yeah. Andona. Andona. Okay, so one came on as part of the tactical rejig after uh, Duffy. Shane Duffy got sent off. The other came on for Glenn Murray, who did his shoulder in part of the incident, which led to the, the Duffy head rub mm. thing. And uh, that's a real worry. It's nice that he scored. The, who's, who's it came on for him? Florin Andone. Thank you very much. Who my laptop autocorrect keeps trying to rename and one. If you type Andoni into your it's, phone uh, or tablet it device, one? it's a it's a ducking disgrace. It puts, as they say. It puts a space in there where no oh, space is needed. Right, but yeah, anyway, so Andoni, Andoni, because yeah. it looks like he might have to be you know carrying the goal scoring burden for a bit, not such as it is at Brighton, because Glenn Murray has done his shoulder. Is that yeah, right? I mean, well, you know, Brighton have been very dependent on Glenn Murray in recent seasons, and despite his advancing years, he's proved a very reliable getter of goals in the Premier League um, and you know there has been that worry that when he's not firing or when he's not fit there's no one there but and only two goals in two um, he got the winner at Huddersfield at the weekend and then scored a really good goal at Palace or picks the ball up on the left drives past James Tompkins cuts inside and scores so obviously Murray being out uh, will be a worry for Brighton, particularly if he's out for any length of time mm. but maybe Andoni can come in and, and do the job he went, he, he, went, he went into second gear and drove, drove past uh, Tompkins. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, yeah. He's in quicksand. Poor old James Tompkins. Bad news all round for Palace, uh, who've also been infested with mice at their training ground, mm. I, I hear. Is that is that actually quite a common thing, David? Not that I've... Uh, not that I know of. I, I did get food poisoning once at, uh, at Aberdeen. Right. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's it's not a great thing having to take a sample of your own... Mm. Runs, yeah, nice. exactly. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't runs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that was. We had a game called off because that all night it was coming at both ends, like projectile. No, okay. <laughs> all right, I'm moving on at this point. So, but Palace, that's that's just part of the problem. Uh, poor old Uncle Roy was left sat there in the rain uh, at the Amex at the end. He said there were no positives to take from the game. Well, I got a penalty. Well, so yeah, there's that. Tell him that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're the only team not to make any changes, Palace. So that's also worrying because other teams who made changes and then didn't perform or had to then bring on their usual first choice players could say, well, you know, we shook it up and the team, mm. the reserves weren't really ready. Whereas Palace stuck to what should be the winning formula. And especially worrying because it was against 10 men, Tom. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, if you're playing against 10 men for over an hour, you would expect, well, first and foremost, you'd expect to be the team who take control of the game you have all the possession but you know by half time they're 3-0 down and the game's already beyond them um, so yeah that's a, a bit of a worry uh, Heading into this weekend's games then it's an interesting scenario at the bottom things beginning to we talked about things getting delineated up top Tom earlier and it's beginning to happen there's that, some of that coalescing down there as well because you've got the bottom three all on nine points Saints, Burnley and Fulham and then basically Huddersfield, Cardiff Palace and Newcastle are all within four points of them, but then you've got a big five-point gap to West Ham, Duncan. Yeah, and then West Ham are playing Palace this weekend, so if they win that, and they've obviously got a reasonable good uh, run of games over Christmas, then you'd think that the bottom seven could become detached, and that could be the relegation battle as we head into the second half of the season. I see. Well, other games this weekend include Brighton. Uh, We'll be seeing if they can continue their... They had a win away from home, didn't they, the other day? They're going to be trying to do that away at Burnley, which is usually a good spot for a victory on the road. Uh, Newcastle will be hosting Wolves amid talk of four bids for 
Uh, Mike Ashley's club, Peter Kenyon, is behind one. Apparently he's found the funding necessary. There's rival bids, though, it is believed, from the US, Middle East and Turkey. We have been here before, but the word is that they think a deal could be done within weeks. Let's see. And uh, on Monday night, the Premier League round concludes with Everton taking on Watford, which will be an emotional affair for Marco Silva and Richarlison. Hmm. Okay. Oh, by the way, on the subject of keepers, David, is Ben Foster, is Ben Foster the signing of the summer? You saw him in action against Man City, who would have been five or six up had it not been for the actions of Ben. Yeah, he was up as he needed uh, another pair of hands, but he's. Uh, I think there's a few uh, few people saying that he was he had a poor season last year. And I thought every time I saw him, I thought he, d- he did really well. West Brom. Um, he's certainly got a, a bit of a resurgence, but he's he's a solid goalkeeper. And I think in the especially, he's not firefighting like he was with uh, with West Brom. You know, he's not just keeping the, st- the score down. He's making a difference. And, and although he, they, they didn't get the result of the night, he, he made sure that they were well within the game uh, towards the end. And, yeah, it gave him a chance of getting a point anyway. Looking but, good, Ben Foster. Yeah. Looking good. All right, well, there's loads of other football around the world. We'll be touching on some of that, the key stories, including Tom's trip to Monte Carlo after this. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsors of Melchester Rovers. Find out more at RoyTheRoversOfficial.com. Listener, in other news, Scotland, Kilmarnock atop. David, this is exciting, isn't it? How much of a shock is it? Yeah, it is a little bit of a shock, but um, it's Steve Clark's doing wonders up there. Right. You know, he's got well, Doninho says, uh, what do you think uh, of the job Steve Clark is doing at Kilmarnock? Well, wonders. Do you think Premier League clubs will be keeping an eye on his progress? Um, possibly, but I think uh, he's got to be uh, he's got to be in the frame for the next Scotland manager, whenever that is. There's not many too, too many candidates for that. But um, certainly, if anything happens to Brendan Rodgers or or um, Stephen Gerrard, then those jobs will probably he'll probably be up for those. But yeah, he's, uh, yeah. I mean, even some of the players I play with a lad, uh, Alan Power, who went from Lincoln to to Kilmarnock and playing centre midfield for him now, and he's performing brilliantly for them, and uh, he's getting still getting a tune out of Chris Boyd up front, who's still scoring goals. So yeah. All credit him. They had a 2-0 win at home to Livingston. They've only lost one game in 11. They haven't conceded in their last four. And as I say, they are now top of this of the table in this very surprising SPL season. Yeah, and top mainly because uh, Aberdeen beat Rangers at Ibrox with only 10 men. Remarkable. Which is a shame. Well, there are loads more killy chat, Duncan, in this week's Totally Scottish Football Show with Andrew Slaven and the gang. Uh, check a trade trophy... Sol Campbell really was in the dugout this midweek as Maxwell took on Newcastle's under-21s. How did it go? He didn't lose. But he didn't win either. And he's not in the competition any longer. They drew the game. They drew the game, but then there was a shootout. And for the first time in their history, Macclesfield lost in a penalty shootout. I Carumba 5-3. Elsewhere in that tournament, it was the first Potteries derby in 16 years. Port Vale taking on Stokes under-21s. People got a little bit emotional about this one. There were 11 arrests, toilet systems were broken off the walls, seats got hurled and windows broken. Staffordshire Police described the match as their biggest footballing operation for 10 years. Stokes under-21s got knocked out 4-0 by Port Vale. Yeah, a strong side of Port Vale. Presumably Port Vale will be using Checker Trade to find a good plumber to replace the <laughs> toilet systems. <laughs> How funny. Tom, you're off to France this weekend. Yes, well, technically, 
Monaco. Oh, yeah. But yes, via yeah. France. You'll be going through France, yeah. It's a nice trip, though, isn't it? You arrive in Nice, chopper across to Monte Carlo, yeah, or just sail the yacht round. Yeah. I'm umming and ahhing between the chopper and the yacht at the moment. Okay, and you're there because? Because Monaco face Nice on Friday evening, the big oh. Thierry Henry-Patrick Vieira derby. Right, okay. Now, Monaco come into this having freshly emerged from the relegation zone in Ligue 1. Almost. Oh. They're currently in the relegation playoff place. Okay. Um, so they are third bottom, but they are behind Caen on goal difference alone. Uh, right. They've won two of their last three, so early days, but signs that they might have turned a corner at long last. Um, nice have been on a good run of form. I think they're eight games unbeaten, but they've drawn the last two nil-nil. Um, so their form has tailed off a bit. Uh, and yeah, Monaco seem to be getting things together somewhat belatedly. So yeah. Interesting to see uh, who comes out on top out of the former Arsenal and France teammates. Patrick Vieira was so highly touted when he arrived at, at Nice. How popular is he there at the moment, though? Oh, he's pretty popular. Um, Not I with mean, Mario Balotelli, though. He's, I mean, as every manager who's worked with Balotelli, there have been issues. Um, I mean, Balotelli's entire summer was, was spent... Um, you know, in the midst of this transfer saga with Marseille, it looked like it was going to happen. It was on, it was off, it was on, it was off. Finally, he stayed at Nice. Uh, so now three seasons um, that, that he'll have been at Nice by the end of this season. Um, and he reported back from pre-season, not in shape. Uh, Vieira basically took him to task over that. They worked on his, on his fitness. Um, and he's now looking fitter, but he's still playing really poorly. Um, he was substituted early uh, in the game at Gangon at the weekend and, and wasn't best pleased about it. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just not going for him. And I think that's one of the issues that Vieira's got is that um, he's he's tightened them up defensively. They're sort of playing with a back three and they're, they're pretty solid in, in midfield and they're, they're relying on Balotelli and Alain Samaximim, a very exciting young winger who sort of plays just off Balotelli in a free role. Um, but neither of, of those two are in great form at the moment. I think that's one of the big reasons why the goals have dried up. I see. In, in other French news, Paris Saint-Germain have drawn again. Yeah, so that's two draws in a row. Mm. So obviously won What's their first on? 14 games of the season, setting a new record for Europe's five major leagues. And then they drew 2-2 against Bordeaux at the weekend and then drew 1-1 at Strasbourg last night. And I mean, I, I think this is perhaps um, a consequence of... Uh, that victory over Liverpool in the Champions League, which felt like a really important win for them, it was something you know left a, them with hideous injuries as well. I think we all recall. Yeah, oh yes, I mean a, to... took a proper battering as mm. well. Um, so you got to factor that in, and I, I think there's perhaps understandably been a bit of an emotional sort of psychological. Really, um, they better get themselves back together. They've got another big Champions League fixture coming up next week when they're away at Red Star Belgrade. They do indeed. I mean, they uh, Thomas Tuchel made quite a few changes at Strasbourg, which is which. Is quite a difficult place to go in general. Um, Transport-wise or just... Uh... Just sort of like, you know, hostility, little ground, mm. fans packed in, that sort of thing. Um, Neymar missing through injury, Mbappe, Di Maria on the bench. And as often is the case, um, it, it took the introduction of Mbappe to spark PSG into some kind of life. He won a penalty that Cavani scored. So, yeah, PSG have, have lost a little bit of momentum. Um, and, and also, they've had their home game against Montpellier this weekend postponed because of the ongoing going gilets jaune protests ah. which complicates things a little bit in view of that that big game against red star belgrade on tuesday italy big match is friday night as juve take on inter in the derby d'italia the beppe marotta derby if you will we talk more about that in this week's galazzo but only after we've finished detailing the extraordinary career of Maurizio zamperini down at palermo 
a man who brought the Sicilian side, their greatest players and their greatest years, but also an extraordinary amount of upheaval on the bench and indeed off it. An example of what the Italians call a coach eater, I believe. A manager allenatore, the ultimate the example, because no other uh, club owner has managed to do what he's done. A couple of highlights. Uh, he managed to fire a manager after a win twice in the same season. Uh, he also, in that same season, went through no less than eight managerial changes. Remarkable. Uh, anyway, Spain, it's the Catalan derby. As Espanyol take on league leaders Barcelona while in Madrid, it's the Super Classico, perhaps. My latest information on this, Tom, is that the second leg of River Plate against Boca Juniors is scheduled to take place on Sunday at the Bernabeu. 2 2, of course, from the first leg. But I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, there's still some uncertainty, isn't there? Or, or is there not? Is it all going ahead? No, there, there seems to be some wrangling. No. Someone's objected to it. Is it River Plate? River objected to it. River Plate yeah. have objected to it. No news um, there. But, I mean, whatever happens, it, there's not going to be a satisfying conclusion to this. Wherever the game takes place and whoever wins it, you know, this this will be the Copa Libertadores that, you know, had to be delayed multiple times, that, you know, that had the attack on the Boca bus. You kind of just want them to get it out of the way, really. I've seen a few people up in arms about this, saying that it's, you know, it shouldn't be... it's. It shouldn't be uh, away from South America, but unless you're actually a Boca or River Plate fan, what I think it's a great spectacle. I want to watch it now. You do, yeah, okay. And it's it's more time friendly for us, isn't it? Well, yeah, except it might clash. I'm not sure of the timings with the final of the MLS Cup. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll just Sky Plus. It's fine. Oh, that's fair enough then. Okay, Atlanta will be taking on Portland in their ever so exciting Mercedes-Benz Stadium. The Five Stripes, as I like to call Atlanta, are making their first MLS Cup appearance in only, Duncan, their second year of existence. You've got to admit, that is remarkable. It is remarkable. The Timbers will be hoping to repeat history because, of course, they won MLS Cup in their first appearance in the game in 2015. Are the Timbers the team who have the, 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 log, the lumberjack man? Yeah, yeah. Okay. and Go there's Timbers. some discussion about where they're going to put their log, if you'll excuse the expression, <laughs> at the Mercedes-Benz do, do they take the log? Yeah, they, they take it yeah. with yeah. them. The, the goal scorer yeah. gets the... Does the goal scorer get the... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, gets the... Yeah, the I mean, maybe River and Boca should bring their cha- own chainsaws to... No, sort of that, that way. It's a great idea. Uh, and that is all the football. So let's get the odds on some of the weekend's games. Producer Ben has been speaking to Paddy Power. Thank you, Jimbo. Lee Price from Paddy Power is on the line. And Lee, Jimbo has been telling us throughout the show that he's got a special feeling about uh, Chelsea, that they're going to inflict the first defeat of the season on Pep and Man City. What are the numbers saying? You're on all right price. They're 3-1, to so you do fancy that as a decent price. City are odds-on to win at Stamford Bridge 5-6, to six, and the draw's 11-4. to four. Hard to argue with that, really. And there's a money-back special on this one too, I believe. We do indeed, and this could be an excuse to back Chelsea at the massive 3-1 to one at home. It's money-back as a free bet of Man City win. That applies to losing first, last, eight-time goal scorers, correct score and what odds paddy markets, max refund £10, TNCs apply. Sticking with Manchester versus London, Claudio Ranieri is going up against his old friend Jose Mourinho as Fulham take on Man United. Give us the odds on this one. Yeah, a meeting of two Chelsea legends, two close friends apparently, and two arch pragmatists. Probably won't be one for the neutral this. United we do favour, they are odds on somehow, 3-10. to uh, Fulham are a massive 17-2 to and the draws 4-1. to More likely, I reckon. Mourinho tops the sack race betting at 15-8. to uh, No one else is anywhere near him. Nuno, weirdly, second favourite at 5-1, to ahead of Dyche at 7-1, to the same price as Neil Warnock. But Mourinho has got to win that. He might win something this season after all. 
Rafa Honigstein's been telling us all about Ralph Rabbit Hutch. What's going to go on, Lee, when Southampton take on Cardiff? And give us the relegation odds from both of these guys, please. So Ralph Hasenhurtle was the man, as we decisively said on Monday's show, uh, or not. Not a bad start for him, Cardiff, although it is away from home. Southampton are just about the favourites. They're 6-4. to four. Cardiff, 9-5. to five. The Jaws, 21-10. to 10. We also favour Southampton in the relegation betting. They're 11-4 to four to go down. That's four favourites, as it were. Cardiff, second favourites are 4-7. to seven. Burnley, the new odds on the favourites to go down at 1-3. to three. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Uh, speaking of what are the odds? Yeah, weren't you hit on the head by something unusual? Almost. Almost. It dropped to my feet. About, as I was making my way in to do Golazzo on Wednesday morning, uh, I was walking along by the kind of the, 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 the watery bit of Regent's Park and there was a thud and a large object had fallen right in front of me. And I, I looked at it thinking, what is it? Is it an enormous bird dropping? But then it wriggled. Its little legs went... And I was a bit perturbed by this. And I, I realised it was actually like a, a tiny little lobster creature, like a langoustine. And it was really... These, wow. are, these are the end times. Well, you wonder, don't you? Um, so I, I wandered on, then turned around thinking perhaps I should document this because people will never believe that I was almost hit on the head by a flying langoustine in Regent's Park. Um, when, but, but the birds had already taken it away. And I surmise, my, you know, my guess is that it was... that I mean, there's a fishmonger up in, in St John's Wood and w- almost certainly a bird, gull or otherwise, would have swooped down. Oh, David, from a restaurant. No, from a or restaurant. Or from a restaurant yeah, possibly, yeah, but it was a live one. That was the thing. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, because it was on its back and its little legs were wriggling. Oh. I considered kicking it into the, into you know, the Regent's Park pond. I don't know what that would have done to the ecosystem. Well, I mean, there. yeah, that'd be the fear, wouldn't it? You wouldn't want to be responsible for some giant mutant strain of langoustines again. suddenly crawling over central London yeah. again. I mean, so um, but equally, when, when I turned around, because I did feel bad for the poor thing wriggling on its back, the birds had already got it, and I reckon that they dropped it because they do that with mollusks, don't they? They drop them from a height to break, break the shell, okay. and then it probably got eaten alive. Okay with its back broken. I think if the bird had a bit more wherewithal, it would have darted inside and got one of those little lobster forks to, mm. to go with it. Wouldn't have had to drop it on the on the path then, but right. might learn its lesson. Perhaps. Perhaps. Maybe that's why you don't often see that happening, because usually they just use forks. Mm. Yeah, there you go. That explains it. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. As I said at the time, probably not the strangest thing that's going to happen all week, but still, because, you know, those are the times we live in. As I think producer Ben discovered... This week, isn't that right, Tom? Yeah, this week or last week, and he opened the door to uh, some kind of tradesman, and the tradesman said, "Hello, is your mum in?" Thinking that Ben was a child, apparently. Well, unless he was looking for, you know, elderly relatives, in which he case he was wearing a romper suit at the time, so it's possibly a, con- <laughs> you know, explicable. What was the tradesman selling? I would have to ask. Oh, really? Patio power cleaning uh, tools. Okay. That is a strange story and comfortably beats my langoustine uh, anecdote, as most things probably will do. Uh, that's pretty much it then for today's show. Duncan, you're looking forward to the weekend's football? Yeah. Okay, good. And which game are you going to pick? I think we'll go for Chelsea. You go for the Chelsea Man City. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be pivotal in this season. When the history books are written, this will be the day they look at. David, what about you? Are you going somewhere fancy? I am doing core comms on Arsenal Huddersfield. Oh, yeah. For international broadcast. So if you're outside the UK, listening. Oh, nice. Talk sport too. 
Right, very good. By the way, listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to David Priest, and there was one listener who wrote in saying they were made up you were on today. Oh, it's lovely that, isn't it? It's not a made-up tweet, I have to say, but it sounds a little bit like it. But there, there is a place they can hear more of you. There is. It's um, Graham Hunter's podcast, The Big Interview. What do you um, talk about? I talk about everything. I talk about um, Shakespeare, about The Merchant of Venice, nice. about my old English teacher, and amongst other things, uh, Peter Schmeichel and Van der Sar, uh, kind of where my analysis comes from. And I was... Absolutely honoured to be asked to do it. When you look at the rest of the people that he's interviewed for for, for this this series, it's uh, it was a real pleasure talking to them. Oh, nice, very good. And that's out at the moment, Tom. Uh, I'm not going to Monte Carlo after all. Oh no, game has just been called off. Can we not the game? Oh, the game's called off. Yeah. Why? Because of the yellow jacket. Because of the gilet jaune. Oh. Even Monaco, even sleepy old Monte Carlo, is not safe from the tyranny of the gilet jaune. It would appear. My word. And I'll just be kind of sat around. You know, watching the skies. Brilliant. Uh, excellent. Do enjoy yourself and stay safe out there, listener. We will be back on Monday with Checks Notes. Oh, we've got Sasha Gurinov in on Monday and Ian Irving and Michael Cox as well. So that's an eclectic and international panel to discuss the weekend's events. Have a great time in the meanwhile. We'll see you then. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. And don't forget to check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.